This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I'm going to speak tonight on creation ex nihilo, Thomas Aquinas on creation and its consequences. I'm going to try and walk slowly through things, but as you'll see, much of this is fairly technical. So, but hopefully it will also be interesting and you'll see the, the value of going through things in technical detail. So, talk of creation conjures myriad images. Many ancient Near Eastern creation narratives speak of conflict. The world as we see it, the very stuff of our material reality, grew from dismembered pieces of horrendous monsters. These monsters were often inhabitants and representatives of a watery chaos subdued into dry compliance by gods waging fierce battles. Genesis dispenses with the conflict and simply speaks of a primeval chaos ordered swiftly and benevolently through a divine word. Genesis 1, 1 1-4 reads, In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. End quote. God's effortless, serene creative act in Genesis lacks the drama of cosmic battles, but gains the drama of a divine command so singularly powerful as to speak the world into ordered existence. Later traditions of interpretations read the narrative meaning of Genesis to indicate yet a more profound level, yet a more radical idea. This came to be designated creation ex nihilo, or creation from nothing. If this sounds anything less than radical to our ears, we have misunderstood entirely. The notion of creation ex nihilo seemingly violates a long-standing conviction of classical philosophy, dating at least to the 5th century BCE pre-Socratic Parmenides. The conviction holds that nothing comes from nothing. Ex nihilo nihil fit. Aristotle would repeat the formula in his Physics, as would Lucretius in his De Rerum Natura. These philosophers repeated a formula even while doing so for strikingly different reasons. Across wide gulfs of understanding, Parmenides, Aristotle, and Lucretius accepted as settled that nothing comes from nothing. The principle, nothing comes from nothing, has an intuitive persuasive force. Any creative act we witness involves a transformation of something into a new form. We can construct a lectern out of wood. We can make bread out of flour, water, and yeast. We can assemble things simple and complex, enormous and diminutive, skyscrapers to cell phones. But all of these actions require materials of some kind. We cannot speak a lectern, a loaf of bread, a skyscraper, or a cell phone into existence and we have never seen anything like that. When theologians began to assert creation ex nihilo, they had to contend, at least implicitly, with a philosophical tradition of opposition to this very possibility. The idea of creation ex nihilo developed in uncertain stages, first suggested and then boldly articulated by Jewish and Christian thinkers in the first centuries of the Common Era. More or less by the end of the third century, creation ex nihilo had become the standard Christian view. 
though widely accepted, it did not shed its radical nature. Medieval treatments were no less cognizant of creation ex nihilo as a challenging concept requiring diligent explication. Such treatments were equally cognizant of the definite and significant gains founded upon a clear understanding of creation ex nihilo. The great medieval scholastic theologian Thomas Aquinas lingers over the topic of creation in various works, examining it from diverse vantage points and for different purposes. This approach lends itself to rich perspectives on creation as a nexus of theological concerns. I note this here in part because the arguments Thomas formulates are never simply linear. They always build upon one another, but also foreshadow or even assume what comes later. Some repetition inevitably follows, but the repetition always involves supplementation. Things are said again, but said somewhat differently. Imagine some object. You can take any basic thing, the microphone, for instance. You can hold this up and examine it from multiple perspectives, turning it around. And with each time, you might see a different side of it. And that side will resemble the other side, but you will gain something else. You will learn something more from that. And Thomas approaches creation in this way. At the outset of one of his famous systematic works, the Summa Contra Gentiles, Thomas characterizes human wisdom as related to highest things and is pertaining fundamentally to order, and more specifically, order to an end. The office of the wise person, Thomas elaborates, consists of two fundamentally related tasks, meditating on and proclaiming divine truth and refuting the opposing errors. Throughout the Summa Contra Gentiles, Thomas performs the office of the wise person, articulating truth with clarity and concision while refuting errors with determination. He does so by examining the nature of creation, not simply or strictly in and of itself, but rather in its order from and to God. The two tasks of the wise person can lend a structure to the presentation of Thomas on creation offered here. I will first sketch three errors that Thomas sought to refute. These erroneous views emerged in various times and contexts, but shared in approaching creation through impoverished conceptual frameworks. A clear understanding of the dangers Thomas sought to eliminate grants both shape and urgency to his articulations of faith. And Thomas regarded this as an urgent matter. Given the prevalence of heretical views, such as espoused by the Cathars, the Dominican order was founded in part to combat such heresies, and Thomas regards the Cathars to fail on metaphysical as well as biblical grounds. So I'll first trace out some of these errors just briefly. The Middle Ages witnessed a resurgence of theological dualism through sects like the Cathars. Late antique forms of dualism, such as made famous by the Manichees, which we all know well from Augustine, um, were, were very popular. Novel forms of dualism, or old forms in new garb, spread through Europe centuries later. One of the few surviving Cathar works, The Book of Two Principles, begins from the experience of good and evil in the world, and reasons from this dualistic experience to two ultimate principles, one of good and the other of evil. 
The basic notion is that evil cannot derive from a good source or an ultimate good, and good cannot derive from an evil source. So, the Cathars argue, all the good in the world flows from an ultimate good, while all the evil flows from a source of pure evil. These opposing principles of good and evil wage cosmic battle in our mundane lives. This theoretical approach seems tidily to account for the good and evil we experience or witness. The Cathar approach further associates evil with materiality in general and embodiment in particular. It can be all too easy to sentence bodies or materiality to condemnation. Bodies have needs and desires, pains and pleasures, and frequent and predictable declines. Envisioning souls as somehow marooned in bodies suggests itself readily enough. But the associations of bodies or materiality with evil stands at odds with repeated divine proclamations of created goodness in Genesis. The other errors Thomas addresses are as old or older still. The second I will mention emerged from Neoplatonic philosophical schools and viewed creation as a necessary emanation from the one. What does this mean? Okay, so Neoplatonic philosophy uh, typically viewed God or the first and supreme cause as an utterly simple and perfect unity existing in a self-contained bliss. Everything else that exists overflows or emanates from the one, and each successful level or stage of emanation bears less similarity to the one. Everything that exists proceeds from the one, remains for a time in its diversity, and then returns ultimately to unity with the one. It is in many respects a beautiful vision, but for our purposes, there is one crucial detail to emphasize. This whole process of emanation and return happens necessarily. The one does not create voluntarily or intentionally. Creation simply and naturally flows forth from the one. What is more, the one in its self-contained bliss remains unaware of this tiered emanation and also of the return of creation to it. So just to be perfectly clear, the Neoplatonic one never intends to create, never knows of creation, and never becomes aware of the return of everything to its primal unity. The third and final error I want to highlight is Epicureanism. The Epicureans, as Thomas understood them, contended that the world we experience resulted from chance confluences of individual constituent parts or atoms. There was no first creative act. And creation does not move towards any goal or end. No logic governs the universe. And so there was no ultimate why for the Epicureans, no underlying intelligibility to our world of experience. All is ultimately left to chance. Epicurean worldviews include any number of further intricacies that far exceed the scope here to discuss. But the essential point remains that the Epicurean world is one without definite purpose, direction, or meaning. So to recap these three errors very briefly, the Cathars argue for two ultimate principles. The Neoplatonists support a scheme of necessary emanation, and the Epicureans affirm a world ultimately beholden to chance. 
These views dress erroneous ideas in a veneer of plausibility, often developing a true observation or reflection, but doing so in a wrong or incorrect manner. Given the dual office of the wise person, Thomas cannot simply rest content to reject these errors, but must also expound the truth. He does so eagerly, but delicately, slowly elaborating subtle distinctions and progressively building a solid foundation for increasingly detailed reflections. I will concentrate more on the solid foundation than on the, the detailed reflections, but I hope to gesture to some of the details that he offers to sufficiently convey the rich texture of his teaching. Against any dualistic affirmations of multiple ultimate first principles, Thomas argues for one first cause of all creation, often specifying this as a first efficient cause. His treatment of creation relies upon earlier arguments for the existence of a first efficient cause, and he argues that God as first efficient cause is the source of being for everything other than God. Just as crucially, Thomas argues it is proper to God and to God alone to be the source of being for everything. We should pause over this characterization of efficient causality as bringing its effect into being. Aristotle famously proposed four types of causes or four types of explanations, final, efficient, formal, and material. Subsequent interpreters often presented efficient causes as moving causes, and it's easy enough to picture a moving cause as some transmission of physical force bringing about a change of state. So one billiard ball striking another billiard ball and causing it to roll into a corner pocket is a convenient example. If one asked why the second billiard ball rolled into the corner pocket, the answer would be because the first billiard ball struck it with sufficient force and in the requisite direction. That's what caused it to move. And uh, th these are the normal daily experiences that we have of efficient causality. Thomas presents the first efficient cause, not simply as causing a state of affairs, a change or a motion, but as causing the existence of the things moved. By affirming creation ex nihilo, Thomas denies any material cause for creation. Thomas rejects the very idea that the stuff of the universe exists as some brute fact needing no further explanation for its existence. This conviction lies at the heart of creation ex nihilo. In other words, there was no pre-existent matter or pure potency somehow waiting around to be formed and shaped into an ordered reality. No, there was only God. God needed no material cause for creation. And it is worth stressing this, lest we slip into thinking that creation is made from God as from a material cause. There simply is no material cause for creation. And that simple fact requires a novel form of efficient causation. God as first efficient cause does not simply set in motion a series of changes in an already existing substrate. Thomas presents many intricate arguments in defense of creation ex nihilo, but quoting one example will hopefully suffice here. So, quote, the more universal an effect is, the higher its proper cause. For the higher the cause, to so many more things does its power extend. But to be is more universal 
than to be moved, since, as the philosophers also teach, there are some beings, stones and the like, which are immobile. So, above the kind of cause which acts only by moving and changing, there must exist that cause which is the first principle of being, and this, as we have proved in the same place, is God. Thus, God does not act only by moving and changing. On the other hand, every agent which cannot bring things into being except from pre-existing matter acts only by moving and changing. For to make something out of matter is the result of some kind of motion or change. Therefore, to bring things into being without pre-existing matter is not impossible. Hence, God brings this into being without pre-existing matter, end quote. So, you know, uh, I was trying to think about a way to illustrate this. And if you imagine, you know, coming upon someone who had set up, you know, an elaborate domino scheme and you find it all knocked down. Uh, for Thomas, the question is not what caused the dominoes to fall, but what caused the dominoes to be. As this quotation that I read hopefully makes clear, Thomas distinguishes the efficient causality of God's creative act from the efficient causality of created causes that merely move or change something already existing. Thomas formulates a number of arguments against the possibility of matter existing simply as a brute fact to be manipulated by a divine builder. And one crucial line of reasoning posits a real distinction between essence and existence. Essence indicates what kind of thing something is, its nature, including the characteristics or properties necessary for being that kind of thing. Human beings are, according to essence, rational animals. The designation rational animal indicates our essential features without specifying the accidental particulars associated with variations within the species or kind. Thomas distinguishes essence from existence or being Existence here translates the Latin essay, literally to be, or sometimes is presented the act of being. While essence indicates what a thing is, or what type of thing a thing is, existence indicates that a thing is. We can imagine any number of essences or types of things that do not actually exist. Unicorns can serve as a convenient example. We can imagine them. We can even enumerate their properties, even though, sad to say, they do not exist. Likewise, we can imagine non-existent individuals within real essences. Fictional characters are the perfect example. These examples speak to the distinction between essence and existence. Recognizing this distinction as real and not simply conceptual clarifies, according to Thomas, the contingency of things. For all these things we know and can imagine, essence does not entail existence. They do not possess existence in and of themselves. We can imagine all types of things that do not actually exist, never have existed, and never will exist. For Thomas, this undermines any attempt to regard a material substrate as a brute fact. But if all these various essences do not possess existence in and of themselves, from whence do they possess it? To avoid an infinite regress, there must be some first whose existence does not depend upon another. The only existence that requires no further explanation than itself is the divine existence. Thomas presents God as ipsum esse subsistens, 
a Latin phrase variously translated as being itself subsisting, the very act of existing itself, or to be subsisting itself. Regardless of how this phrase carries over into English, the basic intention conveys necessary, infinite, and unqualified existence in act. Nothing constrains or conditions God's existence. It requires no explanation beyond itself and serves as an explanation for all else that exists dependently. Stated otherwise, God's essence is to exist, to exist simply and of itself. There is no distinction in God between essence and existence. The simplicity of an essence identical to its own active existence distinguishes God categorically from everything else, or rather distinguishes everything else every contingent existent whose essence and active being are really distinct from God. This distinction is not symmetrical. I'm going to turn now to talking about participation. And as we'll see, I will always hopefully be repeating things but adding something new. Only the divine essence is its existence. For everything else, every created reality, essence and existence remain really distinct. Created essences exist not by themselves, but through another. Rather than possessing existence essentially, everything other than God participates in existence. Scholars often designate this a metaphysics of participation or participatory metaphysics. Thomas defines participation as to take part in something. When X participates in Y, it takes part in Y which means it does not fully possess, exemplify, or exhaust why. To participate in something means to have a share in it, in that something, in a determined and limited manner. We all participate in human nature. This means we all partake in a share of human nature. No one individual does or could embody the whole of human nature, because no concrete instantiation of human nature could encompass all the possible variations within the species. To clarify this, we can note that we all participate not simply in human nature, but also in a broad range of accidental features entailed by human nature. We all have uh, you know, different hair color, eye color, skin color, heights, weights, size, shapes, and everything. These are all part of the possible determinations of human nature. There are, according to Thomas, various types of participation, but the most fundamental is participation in existence or the act of being. Essence and existence are really distinct in everything created, and so every created thing participates in the act of existence. We should pause over the strangeness of this. When I introduced the notion of participation a moment ago, I did so by discussing what it means for X to participate in Y. It is easy to think of this as an already existing subject participating in some activity or category. You can participate in a class discussion, you can participate in a sport, you can participate in an accidental category like hair color, etc. In cases like this, an existing subject takes part in something. Creation ex nihilo and the real distinction between essence and existence implies something far more curious. The act of participation in existence constitutes the participating subject. There is no subject to participate in existence until the act of participation. Stated otherwise, until it participates in Y, 
there is no X. There's only X as and insofar as it participates Y. One way to clarify this difficult but essential point is to note that Thomas denies creation is a change. Thomas writes, quote, in every change or motion, there must be something existing in one way now and in a different way before. For the very word change shows this, but where the whole substance of a thing is brought into being, there can be no same thing existing in different ways, because such a thing would not itself be produced, but would be presupposed to the production." End quote. What does this mean? Creation does not simply change something possibly existing into something actually existing. God is the determination of all that is possible, and everything possible lies within the scope of divine self-knowledge. God creates from what is possible, voluntarily electing to create some things, but not others. This purely depends upon the divine will. We should not, however, envision some giant receptacle full of innumerable possible things waiting to be plucked from the realm of pure possibility and gifted with actuality. All the innumerable possible things are fully encompassed in God's simple and unitary self-knowledge. The act of creation makes real and distinct the created things participating in existence. As we will discuss shortly, this is all due to love. Before turning to divine love and a freely willed creation, we should touch upon how affirmation of causal similitude shapes Thomas's understanding of creation. Effects participate in their causes. This relates to an important principle in scholastic understandings of causality. Omni agens agat sibi simile, which translates as every agent causes something similar to itself. We can consider this a principle of causal similarity. All created things are effects of the first cause and participate in the first cause. Most crucially, Thomas argues all of creation participates in existence or the act of being. Every contingent thing participates in existence rather than possessing it essentially. Another way to put this is that every created thing participates in and reflects the divine existence, even if only dimly. All created things are in fact different manners of participating in and reflecting the divine existence. Since nothing that participates something can fully possess, exemplify, or exhaust that in which it participates, no created thing could ever possess existence to the same degree or in the same manner as God. Everything represents a different degree of being as a different participation in existence. This all relates to Thomas's consideration of the distinction of created things. He stresses that the distinction of things does not depend upon some pre-existing material cause, nor upon some pre-existing merit, nor upon chance, nor upon any secondary agent. The distinction of created things depends upon the divine will and relates to the good. I will turn to the good momentarily but it's the same basic point can be made in terms of existence. Based upon a principle of causal similitude, Thomas argues that a cause causes an effect similar to itself proportionate to two things. First, 
the ability of the effect to receive it. And second, the perfection of the cause. Thomas then reasons, and here's another lengthy quotation from the Summa Contra Gentiles, quote, God is the most perfect agent. It was his prerogative, therefore, to induce his likeness into created things most perfectly, to a degree consonant with the nature of created being. But created things cannot attain to a perfect likeness to God according to only one species of creature. For since the cause transcends the effect, that which is in the cause, simply and unitedly, exists in the effect in composite and multiple fashion. Unless the effect attain to the species of the cause, which cannot be said in this case, because no creature can be equal to God. The presence of multiplicity and variety among created things was therefore necessary that a perfect likeness to God be found in them according to their manner of being. End quote. Thomas's point here is that since no one thing or no one type of thing could ever possibly reflect the divine perfection, a multiplicity of things and types of things yields a diverse whole that better reflects the infinite divine existence. Everything created is at the same time categorically other than God and in its own way, a similitude, a reflection of the divine essence. The categorical difference between God and creation is not such as to exclude any and all similarity. In fact, were there no similarity, creation would not and could not exist. The significance of this can hardly be overstated. The general idea serves as a foundation for Thomas's approach to naming God through analogical predication. Space does not permit exploring this rich topic here, but I hope mentioning it at least suggests the wide array of theological topics that depend upon, relate to, or somehow flow from affirmation of creation ex nihilo. I'm gonna turn now from speaking of existence to goodness. As will hopefully become clear subsequently, scholastic theologians affirm the transcendental convertibility of good and being. This meant that at the highest level, good and being named the same reality, but did so in different ways. Discussing the good will allow us to return later to a discussion of existence with a richer understanding of the implications of creation ex nihilo. So I want to talk now about what is usually called the self-diffusive good. The principle, omni agens agit sibi simile, every agent causes something similar to itself, took on further specification through uh, a related Neoplatonic affirmation. Bonum diffusivum sui est, the good shares itself or diffuses, is self-diffusive. Many discern this basic idea roughly sketched in Plato, but subsequent generations of Platonic thinkers, and Proclus in particular, refined the shape. Scholastic theologians found the idea, even if thought the specific formulation, in Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite. The writings of Dionysius date the late 5th or early 6th century, but were taken to be composed by an Athenian converted to Christianity in Rome by the Apostle Paul. This authorial identification gifted the text tremendous weight. Though the formula found a ready reception, even apart from arguments from authority. This formula and the underlying idea held a prominent place in medieval theology, 
but not without concerns or complications. The Neoplatonic scheme of necessary emanation can easily enough be read as a corollary to the good as self-diffusive. That is, if the good shares itself by definition, then the outpouring of everything else from the supreme good might seem to follow naturally and necessarily. Thomas seeks to separate the notion of the good as self-diffusive from any implication of necessary emanation. God as the supreme good naturally shares itself, but that sharing proceeds out of love. As Thomas frames the matter, quote, God acts in the realm of created things, not by the necessity of his nature, but by the free choice of his will, end quote. Intellect, Thomas argues, implies will. So, having established already that God understands, Thomas concludes that God possesses a will and creates according to that will. Again, he appeals to causal similarity as one support for this conclusion. Quote, the mode of an agent's action is in keeping with the way in which the likeness of its effect exists in it, for every agent produces its like. Now whatever is present in something else exists in it conformably to the latter's mode, but God is intelligent by his essence, as we have shown, so that the likeness of his effect must exist in him in an intelligible mode. Therefore, he acts by his intellect. But the intellect does not produce an effect except by means of the will, whose object is a good apprehended by the intellect and which moves the agent as an end. God, therefore, acts by his will, not of natural necessity. End quote. The good shares itself, and the highest good shares itself in the highest manner. Since God for Thomas is by essence an intelligent and voluntary agent, God shares goodness in the act of creating the universe from nothing. More specifically, God shares goodness with all created things because God freely elects to create them. This free election depends upon God's apprehension of the diverse forms of participated goodness that constitute created things. God creates out of love, or more specifically, God creates out of love for the good. What is peculiar is that creation constitutes an existence, the very thing loved. God does not love things because they are good. Things are good because God loves them. This raises a question about the relationship between existence and goodness. Thomas follows traditional lines of thinking in supporting existence or being and goodness as transcendentally convertible. And I'm gonna to turn to this now, if you're still bearing with me. So, scholastic theologians affirmed that being one, true and good, sometimes also beauty and a few other categories, that these categories transcended or exceeded the 10 categories posited by Aristotle, substance and the nine categories of accidents. Various medieval thinkers offered a range of approaches to the transcendentals in general and for the transcendental convertibility of being and good in particular. Thomas assumes an Aristotelian definition of the good as what all things desire and associates that 
with existence in act. The reasoning holds that what is desirable is the perfect, and the perfect must be in act. Whatever is not in act, whatever is only potential or potentially good, cannot be perfect. Thomas argues from this that the desirability, and hence goodness of anything, depends upon its actuality. God's essence is to exist necessarily and without constraint or limitation. God is thus pure act and so identical to the highest goodness. Every contingent being participates in the divine existence and exists in act as a participation and reflection of the divine essence. What this further implies is that everything that exists, insofar as it exists in act, is good. This is significant for several reasons. One is that it counters a basic presumption of the Cathars and their dualistic views. If being in good are transcendentally convertible, the idea of multiple ultimate principles, one of which is evil, becomes nonsensical. Another is that the transcendental convertibility of being in good indicates an order and direction to creation. This confounds the Epicureans. Being in good name the same reality, but differ according to our understanding. Good adds to being the notion of an end. Why is that important? If talk of God as efficient cause of everything's existence conjures ideas of a primal creative act, it is crucial to remember that Thomas frames creation as an ongoing act, an act that does not simply emerge from God, but an act that also aims at God. Given creation ex nihilo, the participation of every contingent thing in existence and the convertibility of being and the good, it should be clear that the direction of creation is no afterthought or supplement to a basic reality. In Thomas's presentation, it is inconceivable for God to create a universe with no particular intention, with no specific end. The angelic doctor resists any experimental quality to the creative act. God does not create and hope for the best. God does not create and wait to see how things turn out. The end is foreknown. Thomas maintains that God's foreknowledge, though causal, does not impose necessity on the things causally foreknown. Detailing how that works would be the subject of a different lecture. So let it suffice for now to note that Thomas follows William of Auxerre in affirming that God infallibly causes everything to happen, but does so according to the causal mode of created realities. What this means is that God infallibly causes some things to happen necessarily, and God infallibly causes other things to happen contingently because necessity and contingency predicate secondary causes, causes at the level of creation, rather than God's primary and transcendental causality. Thomas elaborates this relationship in treating providence. The point to stress here is more limited. Thomas stresses both that God does not create out of necessity and that God's act of creation does not impose necessity on creation. Creation is freely willed and allows for created freedom. Even created freedom falls within the scope of God's universal causality, 
and so also bears the imprint of an order to God as first cause and ultimate end. We're now in a position to revisit many of the points sketched previously and uh, hopefully glimpse how Thomas assembles them into an intricate and rich understanding of creation. I began by noting that Thomas approaches creation with the twin concerns of the wise person, refuting error and proclaiming truth. The three errors I mentioned were the dualistic approach of the Cathars, the Neoplatonic scheme of necessary emanation, and an Epicurean world of chance. Thomas articulates individual arguments against such errors, but the majesty of his approach is most evident in how the individual arguments together contribute to a larger vision. That vision depends upon affirmation of a first efficient cause. Reading a first efficient cause merely as the source of motion or change in something pre-existing can never provide a satisfactory account. The fundamental question concerns not motion, but existence. For everything we encounter or can imagine, essence and existence are really distinct. This means that the essences of these various things do not entail their existence. If and when they do exist, that very fact of existence wants explanation. Thomas reasons that all contingent existences require and depend for their being upon a necessary existent. Ipsum esse subsistens. The act of creation involves no motion or change. It simply calls forth into existence things other than God. Creation ex nihilo involves an asymmetrical relationship in which creation depends absolutely upon God for its very existence, and in fact exists as a participation in the divine being. Participation in existence, as previously noted, pushes the limits of our cognitive abilities. It calls us to conceive a participation in which the very act of participation constitutes in being the subject participating. The conceptual distance between God's necessary existence and the contingent existence of created things might seem to end in a complete dissimilarity, but Thomas resists such a conclusion. Every agent causes something similar to itself, and so all created effects of the uncreated cause resemble that cause intimately, even if dimly. Thinking this resemblance simply in terms of being fails to capture its dynamism, a dynamism better captured through the good. Thomas holds that the good shares itself or is self-diffusive. It does this essentially, but that does not mean necessarily. God understands essentially and wills essentially. We should never picture the highest good sharing itself as if it were some involuntary outpouring. No, Thomas insists it depends upon God's free election to create and to create some things rather than others. Bestowing existence upon things necessarily involves a bestowal of goodness because being and good are convertible. They name the same ultimate reality, even if in different ways. Created participation in divine being is simultaneously created participation in divine good. All created things 
are so many various forms of participation, and the symphony of these diverse participations better reflects the divine being and good than could the single best form alone, no matter how oft repeated. The whole is somehow greater than merely the sum of its parts. For Thomas, that is the mystery and the wonder of a universe created from nothing, but for something. Thank you. Thank you very much for your lecture. I appreciate it. Um, I just have a question. I'm curious about the idea of abstract objects. Mm -hmm. um, so my question for you was, um, what is the nature of existence for abstract objects and logically necessary truths that, that are true for all possible worlds, including worlds where God did not create? Yeah, so um, sometimes we get this a lot, and, and Thomas does address things about possible worlds. So th uh, the main point is that uh, everything, even some things that we might call mental existences, or you said abstract existences, these all fall within the simple and single act of divine self-knowledge. So um, there's a long history of this, but um, some platonically inflected early forms of Christianity took, and this is especially true in Augustine, took the platonic realm of the ideal forms and they turned these into the divine ideas. And so that everything, these were part of ideas within God. And then what uh, comes to be specified, Augustine does this, but the scholastics do this even more, is that all of this is just one um, simple and simple act of self-knowledge within God. So these are all perfectly and unitedly and simply and, you know, uh, simple, part of the simple divine knowledge within God. We know them distinctly. And, uh, you know, when, when we're talking about um, Thomas, when, when Thomas wants to talk about existence, he's really talking about existence in act. And this is different from, say, um, the, the way that you might consider a formula to exist. You know, my, the, the, it can exist in act so far as it exists in, in you discreetly thinking about it, and that thought can exist in act. But um, the, there's a different um, level or realm of mental existence that is not exactly what he's talking about in, in terms of essay here. Um, some later scholastics uh, add to um, add uh, many different categories of existence, you might say, to try and in to try and explain more clearly what are the levels of, say, you know, just intentional objects, mental objects, other things that they think are not just um, some pure abstraction, but don't have, you know, what we might call actual existence. Thomas tries to, um, I don't know if you'd say he resists that move, but he he's not interested in it in the sense that he wants to stress other other points. Thank you. Yeah. One of the things that I noticed in reading the latest comedies right there, the definition of a, of a thing which exists in accordance to either actions or uh, in accordance to uh, some greater form that lies out there in the ether. Um, that's uh, rather interesting. Um, in terms of like the, uh, I suppose, um, in terms of the, uh, the, the uh, dismissing the Epicurean idea of the, uh, of the uh, I suppose, the realms of infinite variations of possibilities. Mm -hmm. um, could you could you further elaborate on the dismissal of that? Uh, is is it somewhere along the lines of like the uh, uh, of uh, of the fact that it's uh, the it only appears as such given our our finite um, but is not such 
due to the infiniteness of the creator, or is it along some other lines that I'm uh, perhaps missing here? Because it, you, you did mention that. You did mention the fact that it's not exactly plucked from uh, like a, a basket of a basket of goodies, so to speak. Yeah, so um, the way Thomas tries to think about it is that uh, we shouldn't think about you know, what we would now maybe call possible worlds. And we think about those as discrete realities that we can imagine. Okay. And so the, his point is that those things only become discrete realities through this act of creation. Otherwise, they're part of this one simple divine self-understanding, which encompasses an, you know, an infinite number of things because of divine things. omnipotence. <laughs> but so it's, it's so um, uh, the point is one could easily have this image of just, you know, I think about mm -hmm. it if you, I don't know. It's not a very great way of putting it, but you can imagine, you know, like you have a bunch of figurines and you pick up some and put them in the field of play and, and yeah. you make those actual. And Thomas wants to say that is not the way that this works. And so um, there. Um, so the point that he's responding to here is different from a, a, a another point that is sometimes articulated in classical philosophy, that everything that is possible will become actual. Mm. So he would reject that because he thinks that. Um, for some, you know, uh, the divine possibilities are infinite and you can't have an actually extensive infinity. This is something he takes from from uh, Aristotle. So you can't have an actually extensive infinity. Uh, it would be a contradiction. You can only have, you know, an, um, in, uh, an intensively, inf uh, something intensively infinite an actual. In and so God has that in terms of intensively in the simple divine okay. knowledge. But it's impossible to have that because, you know, uh, it goes back in a way to a formulation of like Zeno's paradox of motion. If it's an infinite chain, then you never get to where you are now because yeah, you have to go we, back. <laughs> and this is also where some late antique commentators on Plato's physics, John Philoponus in particular, um, where uh, Aristotle thinks that, you know, um, um, prime matter is just eternal and it is formed. And John Philoponus thinks that this fails on Aristotelian grounds because if it's just eternal, then you never have a first and so you could never get to where you are now. So uh, Aquinas' concern here, he's getting most of his ideas about the Epicureans, some from Plato, uh, Aristotle's critique of them in the physics, but so he's, um, he's really interested in trying to reject the idea that what we see as an orderly reality is just from these, um, you know, combination of atoms in, in different aspects. And so the main thing that he's uh, arguing against is not simply that there'll be, you know, um, infinite uh, um, extensive infinity uh, or, or an actual extensive infinity, but more the idea that the combinations, the, th the things that we perceive as ordered are actually the result of chance. Okay. okay. And so he thinks that is a fundamentally bankrupt idea. So I'm sorry if this is a dumb question. I'm still you know, thinking it through with the question, so to speak. But yeah. what are essences? And what I mean by that is, so for example, because it seems to be very distinct, I don't know, would it make sense to say essences exist? And with that reasoning, are essences good in the sense of does God elect freely to allow them to participate in existing and does that make them good? Yeah, um, you know, there are some Thomas debates about this. I guess you should just say uh, these, these, the debates about the, the existential status of essences really come to a fore after Aquinas. And so these are famous debates between realists and nominalists about whether these things are just abstractions, whether there is such a thing as human nature or whether they're only human individuals. And so Thomas precedes those debates and doesn't really um, 
engage in those in certain kinds of ways. What he is clear about is that human nature does not exist as sort of this platonic ideal form in this separate realm. So it exists in God, you know, and it exists as it's instantiated in individuals. But um, he, there are later debates that try and add you could say add nuance, some would say add nuance, others would say add confusion to the consideration of what, what is the status of these things. And, and Aquinas is not yet engaging in those debates. And it's not a very satisfying answer, but, you know. So you mentioned the idea that only God's essence is identical to his existence, right? Mm -hmm. So along those lines. Yeah. But it seems to me that the essence of being would also be existence. So would it be fair to say being and God would be in some way synonymous? Uh, in, 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 he thinks that in, in its simplest, purest form, yes, God is pure being. It gets a little bit complicated. And again, if this, um, Thomas has a, a, a famous doctrine of the analogical naming of God. And so the names applied to God, especially of the pure perfections, are not simply univocal because we can't ever predicate things univocally in the exact same sense of God and creation, but they also aren't purely equivocal. And so when you predicate being of God, um, the thing that you're signifying is true in God, but the mode of signifying is true in creation. So there's this sort of strange disconnect. So when, when you predicate being of God, it's a true predication, but we don't mean it in quite the, the fullest way because God always exceeds the way that we can mean or predicate that. So would beings assume individual beings? It's, so maybe I'd put this as a, it, the context is usually presented with John Duns Scotus, a, a later scholastic thinker who develops this notion of the university of being. And there's some debates about this. I tend to favor the reading of, of some that, that for Scotus is just a logical concept. And for him, what he means by that is that we just, we mean, you know, when we say being in the most general sense, you mean something rather than absolutely nothing. And within that, there are all these different ideas. The critics of that think that uh, Scotus has made the distinction between divine being and the created being quantitative rather than qualitative. And Aquinas certainly wants to maintain that it's a qualitative distinction. And so um, he, he would never say being has an essence because uh, being is then this act. It's something fundamentally different. But so the, the divine essence is existence. So there's a certain sense in which you could say, yes, um, God is synonymous with pure being. Um, but um, he, you know, um, he usually takes this also as that, that, to be or being is then the primary name of God. And he takes this in part from Exodus 3.14, my name is I am. Uh, he gets a sum from John of Damascus who presents God as this infinite ocean of existence. And so he, he will um, take up that language, but he doesn't want to, that to then be understood as if um, where you've kind of watered down a notion of God, where all it means to be God is to exist. You know? Ah, me. <laughs> I want attention. Okay. Um, something I, I, I thought I, I saw briefly was a, was a well, I had a, recoll a recollection to the to the youth of Red Dilemma that we were mentioning the uh, uh, the, uh, the the coinciding nature of goodness and existence, mm -hmm. and I, I, I want to know if uh, I, I haven't gotten to uh, I've gotten 
in classical literature. I, I, I made it about two thirds of the way through Plato, just mm -hmm. about. Um, but uh, I haven't made it to Aquinas. <laughs> he's quite, he's quite a long ways there. And I wanted to know if he was uh, specifically whenever he was doing that, if there's any evidence that he had that that uh, that issue in mind, the youthful dilemma. I don't think so. Uh, um, they had very limited knowledge in, in the high scholastic period. They had pretty limited knowledge of Plato. They had some knowledge of the Timaeus, but they, they weren't really reading very much Plato directly. The um, main inspiration of this, some it comes from Pseudo-Dionysius, some it comes from Proclus, some it comes from the Liber de Causis, the, the Book of Causes, but the direct inspiration for this, uh, or the, the um, text that ignited the debates about this, was Boethius's De Hebdomadibus. And Boethius tries to answer the question of the relationship of being and good because he, he thinks and um, the, he also gets this from Augustine. Augustine, in his reply to the Manichees and to Manichaean dualism, equates um, being with good and so that evil is not a substance. Evil isn't a thing. It's just a deprivation of intended goodness. It's just a corruption. And so... Uh, what then Boethius tries to articulate is uh, he wants to say both that um, things insofar as they exist are good, but he also wants to say that um, good it names existence in relation to an end. So the dilemma is how can something both be good and desire the good? And so then this is where he develops a sense of participation in this because it's uh, it, the goodness that it has is a participated good, it can still, it's not good just by its own substance or, or, or essence, it can still be good and then desire that perfection of the good. Oh, all right, all right. That makes sense. Thank you. Well, then, I believe that is it. Thank you all for coming, and once more, give a big round of applause. For Thanks again, Thanks again you know, for the invitation and for your coaching.